I do want to let you know, I've been asked to let you know, um, that on 10 a.m. on Thursday, if you are available, 10 a.m. on Thursday, if you could come in and help undecorate the sanctuary, um, that is the time that they have chosen to come in and get everything put down, and there's a system, and it does not take long. It takes less time to, put, to take down than it does to put up, doesn't it? So uh, if you could be here at 10 a.m. on Thursday to help make that happen, very much appreciated. Our text this morning is going to be from the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you were with us a, a couple of Sunday nights ago, you, you heard a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today. But after I, I shared on Sunday night, I, I felt like that this was a message that I wanted everybody to hear, particularly here at the, at the turning of the year. We are in Acts, if, if, you, if you want to place yourself in Acts, and, and what has gone on in Acts, and the, the, first, the very first part of Acts, of chapter 1, begins, and the resurrected Christ is still with the disciples. He is, is still present with them. He promises that they will receive the Holy Spirit, gives them Luke's version of the Great Commission, Immediately after that, the resurrected body of the Lord is carried bodily into heaven in this event that we call the ascension. After the ascension, where we're told first that the, the disciples are united in prayer, that they choose Matthias to replace Judas, they figured if, if Jesus picked 12 disciples, there was a reason for that. They wanted to replace the 12th, and so they picked this guy, Matthias, who we never hear from again. And immediately after they pick Matthias, we, we are told that they still serve, they're staying there in Jerusalem, and about 40 days later, they're gathered together in, in prayer, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them in this event that we now call Pentecost. And immediately after that, you know there's this, this first sermon of Peter's in which he, first time after the death and resurrection of Jesus, presents the gospel to the people. We're told that when they, when they heard, they wanted to know what they needed to do. And Peter calls them to repentance and baptism and we're told that on that day, 3,000 were added to their number. And then we find ourselves where we're going to be today in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is, this is immediately following the baptism of 3,000 individuals. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? One verse. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is the word of God. Say it with me. Read it, believe it, and live it. 
Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we gather before you today, as we open your word to study it, I pray that you would have us see in your text what you would have us to see. That you would have the people hear what you would have them to hear. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So in this very unique moment, after the what we, what we think of now as the birth of the church, sometimes we, we call it that, we call it the birth of the church at Pentecost, the, the preaching of Peter, the salvation of, of 3,000 individuals. In the immediate aftermath of that, we're given this description of what the very, very, very earliest church did. We see that they devote themselves to four things. They devote themselves to four things. They devote themselves to apostolic teaching, to the fellowship, to Christian fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to table fellowship, and to prayer. These four things. As we read on, what we'll see in a little bit is we'll see that every day God adds more to their number. What we see is that in devoting themselves to these four things, they are a healthy, growing, robust church within the will of God. So I think it's important for us to look at these four things, think about what each of these four things means, to, to, to focus also on the one that is listed first and last, and to think about what that means for this congregation going forward. So the first thing that they're called to devote themselves to, the first things that we're told they devote themselves to is the teaching of the apostles, or what we might call apostolic teaching. Now, this may come as a surprise to you. You may not know this. As far as I know, as I'm looking around, everyone in this room except Ernie is a Baptist. I got to call you out, brother. But I, I'm doing that for a reason, right? Because in the tradition that Ernie grew up on, they have a very different understanding of what we're going to call apostolic succession than what we do as Baptists. In a lot of churches, the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, the idea of apostolic succession is someone who was ordained by 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 the apostles all the way back ordains going forward, right? The bishops lay on the hands, and there are people who, who'd go to a lot of trouble to figure out how they go all the way back. In my father-in-law's study, there's a, a family tree that someone had done for him that's, that's his apostolic succession going all the way back to John Wesley on the Methodist side and Jakob Albrecht on the Evangelical United Brethren side. Interestingly, since Dave laid hands on me when I was ordained, 
I too can trace my Baptist ordination all the way back to John Wesley. It gives a little bit of comfort to my very Methodist mother. That's that that is, is some church's understanding of apostolic succession. The Baptist understanding of apostolic succession, and one that I would tell you I believe is correct, otherwise I wouldn't be a Baptist, is that what true apostolic succession means is the carrying on of the teachings of the apostles. We see this in Jude 3. You know, Jude's one of those books, there isn't more than one chapter. So when you see Jude 3, it doesn't mean the third chapter of Jude, it means the third verse of Jude. And Jude, Jude 3 reads thusly. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, and here's the important part, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So what Jude's talking about here is he's talking about the apostolic faith, the faith of the apostles, the faith that was given to the apostles and that the apostles preached and taught. Now, the question that we might have for ourselves is this. How do we know what the teachings of the apostles were? I don't know about you, I don't see any of the 12 apostles walking around today, do you? I mean, I can't pick up the phone and call Peter, or Paul, or James, or Matthew, right? So how do we know that we're devoted to the teaching of the apostles? Well, I'll, I'll say this, if you, if, if you ever hear someone talking about apostolic teaching, and that we should guide ourselves by the teaching of the apostles, what they mean is biblical teaching. This is what God has given us that contains and preserves the teaching of the apostles. This, is the, this contains the faith that was delivered once for all from the apostles. It's, it's why apostolic authorship or apostolic involvement in authorship was so important in discerning which books and writings were Scripture and which were not. You might not know. There's, there are tons of Christian writings from the, from the first and very early second century which are edifying and good to read. But they did not have apostolic authorship, and so they weren't included in Scripture. Because, because what, what we tried to do when we discerned what was and wasn't Scripture is we, we knew that Scripture was going to be apostolic. That it was going to preserve that teaching of the apostles. And so that is what they're devoted to. They're devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They're devoted for us to what we find here. You've heard me say it once. If you've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it a thousand times. If anybody, me or anybody else, ever starts preaching and teaching something that is not in this book, run as fast as you can in the other direction as far as you can. They were devoted to apostolic. 
teaching. The next thing we find themselves devoted to is we find themselves devoted to the fellowship. So it, it doesn't say fellowship. It says the fellowship. It's talking about a specific fellowship, something what we might call Christian fellowship. Now, we just had fellowship time this morning. Every fifth Sunday, we, we gather. We don't have Sunday school. We gather in the fellowship hall, and we do what we do best as Baptists. We eat. And we spend time together, and we talk with one another. And there are other times that we gather for fellowship. The, the, the group that goes once a month, the, the joy group, that, that's a time of, of fellowship. Let me encourage you if, you, if you aren't going on joy trips, go. But, but what they mean here by the fellowship is a, is a little bit more than just that hanging out together. It's not less than that. It includes that, but it's more than that. When, we, when they say that they're devoted to the fellowship, what they mean is they're devoted to the body. They're devoted to the fellowship that is the people. Okay. One more nerd reference for y'all. In the first volume of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, when, he's, when they refer to it as the Fellowship of the Rings, it's the nine, right? It's not that the nine are hanging out having a good time on their camp out. That's not that kind of fellowship. It means the gathering of the nine walkers that have gone on this mission. That's the fellowship in that work. So when Luke here in Acts talks about the fellowship, he doesn't mean just us having a good time hanging out with each other. He means they're devoted to one another. And we see that played out in the next few verses. 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They were, they were caring for each other. They were supporting one another. And they were gathering every day for worship in the temple. Every day gathering for worship in the temple. Not once a week, not for an hour, not, not for a time when, when if the apostle went on a little too long, they started looking at watches. Every day they went to the temple together to worship. It was interesting this morning. It's, it's amazing how these things happen. This morning's Quintel Hill, who's our, our state convention president, posted a picture. And he didn't say where the picture was from. I happen to know where the picture was from because I've, I've been there. It's from the African American History and Heritage Museum, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And it was testimony of a woman in 1930 
a woman who had been enslaved talking about how they had their own place for church behind the brickyard and that every night they gathered for worship. Every night, wherever this was, and the, the, the quote, I'm sure there's probably an explanation somewhere that Quintel didn't include in the picture, but wherever this woman was, wherever this woman was enslaved, the believers in that enslaved community gathered together nightly to worship. Quintel posted it with the comment, and after COVID, we can't even get folks to come once a week. That's devotion to the fellowship. You can't have fellowship with one another if you aren't spending time with one another, and you can't have Christian fellowship with one another if you are not gathered regularly in worship with one another. Devoted themselves to apostolic teaching. Devoted themselves to Christian fellowship. The third thing that we see is they devoted themselves to what I'm going to call table fellowship. The breaking of bread. Now, this is where it gets a little hard. Right? Because we gather, this congregation has become our, our tradition to gather once a month at this table and break bread together in the practice the ordinance that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And sometimes it's hard, particularly in the New Testament, when you read about the breaking of bread, do they mean communion or do they mean having a meal together? And I think the answer there is there wasn't a difference for them. What does Christ tell us? Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Whenever we do what? Whenever we eat bread. Whenever we drink... Okay, we're Baptists. We don't drink wine. Whenever we drink grape juice. But for them, every meal, wine. What Christ is saying is, day in, day out, you do this thing to live, to sustain yourself. You need to remember every day as you are sustaining yourself with the bread and the cup that I am present and I am sustaining you. Now, this is, I'm not speaking against communion. I'm not speaking against the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I think it is right and proper for us to set apart special time to remember and we know that very early in the church, there becomes a special time of table fellowship where they set aside special time to break the bread and drink the cup together. But, but here in the, the very earliest days of the church, when it says that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, I think they mean fellowship around the Lord's table, but I think they also mean fellowship around each other's table. And how do we know that? Well, we keep, we keep reading where we were. We were at the, the second part of verse 46. Well, we'll start back at the beginning of 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. 
They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. So we're given their time of worship, right, in the temple, and then we're given this that they broke bread from house to house. And so we see that there's a a table fellowship here that extends beyond the Lord's table. And, And they went from house to house. They were in each other's homes. They were in each other's lives. You know, there's something special about sharing a meal with someone, isn't there? I mean, sharing a meal, sharing food together, it brings down barriers. It opens people up in ways that just sitting around talking won't do. You are vulnerable when you are sitting around a table eating, aren't you? You're vulnerable in a way that you're not if you're just sitting in the chair in the living room. We know this, right? We experience this. And so they broke bread from house to house. But notice how they do it, right? They do it with joyful and sincere hearts. Joyful and sincere hearts. They weren't doing it because it was an obligation. They weren't doing it because they thought they was expected of them. They weren't doing it so they could have people into their home so everyone could, could see the new tile backsplash in the kitchen. Or the, new, or the new paint color that went up in the walls. Right? They did it with joyful and sincere hearts. There was, a, there was a joy in their fellowship. There was a sincerity in their, their desire to spend time with each other. And again, we're, we're told that they go daily to the temple and to break bread. So that, that and connects that back to Daily. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to have people over every night of the week. Some of us are introverts. Once a week is pushing it. I get it. But there are other ways, right, that we can enter into table fellowship with one another. That we can, that we can do the, take the mundane things of life and use them to unite us together. Because that's what Christ does at the table, right? He takes these these two most mundane things, the things that everybody had access to, bread and wine, and he turns them into something special to unite his people together and to unite us with him. And so we're, we're told here that they take the mundane things of life day-to-day meals, and use them to unite together. And in uniting together, find themselves more united with the one who unites them. The fourth is this. We find themselves, we find that they're, they're devoted to apostolic teaching, they're devoted to Christian fellowship, they're devoted to table fellowship. The, finally, the fourth thing that we see is that they're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to prayer. I mentioned it back in uh, Acts 1, but we turn back to Acts 1, chapter 
14, immediately after the ascension, and we're told this, they were continually, continually united in prayer along with the women. The, the they is referring to the, the apostles, the disciples that have just been named in the previous verse. They all were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, his brothers are restored to Jesus. If we remember earlier in the Gospels, they have turned their back on him because they, well, frankly, they're scared for him. Not to put too fine a point on it, they think he's lost his marbles. And yet we see now, Oh, should have had a little more faith in my brother. We see that they're united continually in prayer. If we, if we do not pray together, we're in trouble. Your individual prayer life is wonderful. Wonderful. And, 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 and what Sharon told the, the kids this morning is 100% true. We need to. In fact, I would encourage you, particularly if you're like me and you use one of these as your calendar and you can set your, your little reminders, set a daily reminder for Bible study. Download one of the, download one of the apps that will send you notifications. Hey, it's time to read your Bible. Set daily reminders for prayer. This year, Ken Griswold, who's the pastor at Bethesda Methodist, Ken decided that he wanted to, to do a modified form of praying the hours. So his phone reminds him, I, I think it's 8 o'clock in the morning, noon, and 8 o'clock at night to pray. And I know this because I've had, been having lunch with Ken and his phone's gone off and he goes, oh, hold it, got to pray. And I think Ken would tell you that doing that practice over the course of the year has changed him, enriched his prayer life. So, so please don't misunderstand me and don't mishear me. You need a robust study of Scripture and prayer in your own life. But, but what Luke is talking about here in Acts 2 is not individual prayer life. He's talking about the fellowship praying together. He's talking about the fellowship being united in prayer as they were in Acts 1. He's talking about the fellowship praying with one mind to God. We have to gather for prayer. We, we, we pray on Sunday morning. Over the last year or two, we've had opportunity on Wednesday night and Sunday night to gather together to pray. If we want to see healthy congregations, they have to be congregations that pray together. Congregations that are united in prayer. And so we end up with these, with these four elements that they're devoted to. They're devoted to, to apostolic teaching, Christian fellowship, table fellowship, and to prayer. 
Now, if you, if you look, you'll see that the title was Bookends of the Church. Because I, I think that the, the, the first thing and the last thing that Luke mentions functions as bookends for this life of the early church. What, what do bookends do? They hold books together, don't they? You know, I mean, I mean, sometimes you use one bookend against a bunch of books to hold it against the end of the bookshelf, but, but sometimes some of you have so few books that you can, you know, I've never had that problem. Some of you have so few books, you put one book in on either side of two or three books, right? I wish I had enough bookshelf space that I could do that. But, but what happens if you take one of those bookends away? It falls apart, doesn't it? It doesn't stick together. Now, I, I, I want to be clear. What I'm about to say is interpretation and not straight exposition of the text. But if we want to have that, that meaty center of the church, the fellowship, the Christian fellowship and the table fellowship, unless we bookend it with apostolic biblical teaching and prayer, the middle falls apart. You can't have the middle without those two bookends. That's what centers us. That's what unites us. That's what points us in one direction. We, see, we hear that the apostles were united in prayer. Well, what united them? What united them was the gospel that they had received that they were instructed to carry forth. That was the, the, their teaching. United them in prayer. And then because they, they had their teaching and they had their prayer, you could see the Christian fellowship and the table fellowship flourish. And as I mentioned when we began, the very end of this section tells us what happens when a church is united and held together by these two bookends. Every day, every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is a, a picture presented to us by Luke Yes, as a description of the early church, but also of a healthy church. Of a church that's growing. Of a church that's on mission. Of a church that's united. Of a church that loves one another. That's focused on the gospel. Focused on what's most important. And so they, they devote themselves to these, to these four things but they make sure that the, the apostolic teaching, the, the teaching of the apostles, biblical teaching, and prayer keeps everything together. That's my prayer for this congregation, 
for 2024. That you would devote yourselves to biblical teaching, to the fellowship, to table fellowship, and that you would be united in prayer. And any time a congregation is able to get those four things right, every day people will be added to their number. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be 